What's up, bootlickers? I haven't seen y'all since the camp out. I got something to say, right? Anarchy is, and always has been, the best way and the only morally sensible way to run the world. Cool. It's not just cool. It's the intersection of life and politics, activism and action. And there's only one way to get power. Organize all the workers together. One big union. And the war the IWW wants you to get into is class war. War against the capitalists. Come on, it's not criminal to be an individual. It's not criminal to be an individual. How could you go to a riot without me? You were supposed to be on a riot, buddy. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space! I was a victim too. At least my wife was. She had friends who were socialists. Oh my god. Welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This is the Three Left Show. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed. Promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. The show also officially gives you permission to not have to listen to all of it all at once. Sometimes when I do listen to my show when I'm not just editing it, but even just like I was listening to it offhand like it was in the background... I just noticed just how goddamn dense I am and wordy, and uh, and I also had a comrade of mine tell me it's like yeah it's just you're, you're so much smarter than me Dan uh, I I can only handle a little bit of the show at once uh, or or a bit at a time fear fear not good viewer listener um, no judgment for me and uh, and very well I did make uh, I set out to make this show something that I would want to listen to. The thing is, though, most of what I listen to is things that are an hour long. Uh, some things are two hours, but that's when I'm gaming or, you know, I just need something in the background. So a two-hour video conversation where I'm only half listening. And the thing about my program is I would prefer people not half listen to it, but when I'm editing it, I am fully, you know, listening and uh, active listening. But... When it comes to most podcast listening, you're not usually active listening to it. Consider it good practice, because when it comes to conversing with people in a humanistic way, uh, having deep, productive conversations, debate, what have you, and by debate I mean actual back and forth, not arguments, as it's uh, colloquially used online. Even when people mean argument, they say debate. and when, or Even when people say mean productive conversation, they say debate. It's kind of confusing. Rather, it's unhelpful. Anyway, maybe that intro helped uh, inspire you a little bit uh, from what feelings you maybe have if you have heard the news that there's been, because I don't know if they're trying to get ahead of something, that the there was a leak from the Supreme Court. They will, or they have already decided, because this is already in the works for 30 years, to overturn Roe v. Wade, Federal Protection for Abortion, as good as that has been, as effective as that has been in various states. So there, you can keep that 
this recent flashpoint in mind as I discuss the general issue of the show today, which I am titling The End. Yeah, um, not in the morbid way, but just that it's the end of something. The end of mm, liberal democracy as we know it, or the end... Of course, it's not just one... It's not all ending on one particular day, but it's just the, the mindset that things are ending, even if there's this continuation of a type of normalcy, which one could describe as being late capitalist hellscape. Or, a.k.a., same old, same old. Which is kind of what's offered when uh, when people talk of independent thinking, let's work together to solve our problems, let's not fight and be partisan, not have principles. First, um, ooh, I'm, I'm still able to access it here um, online here uh, through my uh, Firefox browser. RT. By, um, but it's not, it's, look, it's not... Russian Broadcasting is a broadcaster that happens to feature people who are skeptical, if not hostile, or critical of U.S. imperialism or the U.S. nationalism, really. Just being anti-nationalist itself is a, something that puts you in the traitor category. First, I want to cover a, this little opinion piece uh, from a social a sociologist the powers that be, ruling class, um, and general mindsets that you... There's the mistake of either, say... Uh, yes, just just as how you can kind of make the mistake of, of being an American exceptionalist, that America can do no wrong, and that everything good in the world has flowed from American actions, more or less, especially today, that you can also do the opposite, and consider that everything wrong in the world is America's fault, which is kind of a toxic uh, anti-imperialism. But you're only against American imperialism or something, because which is both mindsets are very nigh, um, where you are self-centered. They're both very self-centered. Thinking America is very important. It is the most important thing because you are American and you are really important, right? And you can make the same mistake with our government, with our, our economic elites as well, that they are in control to put the Greek pantheon, you know, a Jupiterian conspiracy that, you know, you have these gods and they do not care for you. And they got it all figured out. They're going to put you in the pod, make you eat the bugs, uh, is the meme. Or they have a plan for us, pandemic. Whenever anyone goes around to when they they release the virus <laughs> you know why not say they're they're you know they are they put out the common gold every year think of all the ways your life has been sabotaged by getting the in a yearly yearly sick sick in a yearly way maybe some entity is behind it well we can also do the opposite and consider that because there are problems in the world and because things are like maybe you get we have this the anxiety that things are very very wrong even if there's food on our in our refrigerators that things are not going we do not have we have anxiety about the future it does not seem like the future will be stable and the reason could be because our quote unquote ruling class elites our government is just can't be trusted with the future 
So this is a, it's titled the bumbling inefficiency of our elites during the pandemic should dispel any notion that they are capable of any kind of quote unquote conspiracy. So this was published back in September of 2021 by Ashley Foley, who's a senior lecturer in sociology and social policy at Salon C university and author of semiotics of happiness, rhetorical beginnings of a public problem. Now uh, she's a Brit. So she's coming from an English perspective here. But I think you can definitely overlay this on the American government, too. Starting the reading. The best protection against conspiracy theories is to take a realistic look at the wrong workings of elites when they actually attempt to deal with the problem. We might say that the UK state's failure to manage COVID-19 represents an ideal vaccine against conspiratorial thinking, which is fitting, as vaccinations might be the only success story of the pandemic. Increasingly, the only role the state seems for its, sees for itself is in telling people what to do. Decent health care? That's expensive. Have you tried a mask? In this way, the UK state, or the American state, has shown itself to be woefully inadequate in rising to the challenge of dealing with the outbreak of disease. Yet it is precisely during such an emergency situation that we want a government that can, well, govern. Instead, the pandemic has shown wherein the true skills of elites lie in setting themselves up as managers and regulators while doing as little as possible in the process. They kind of want it both ways, as maybe we all do. It may come as a surprise to some that the UK had actually ranked quite highly in pandemic preparedness prior to 2020. Indeed, the World Economic Forum's Global Security Index had ranked Britain and the U.S. as the best prepared in the world for a global pandemic in 2019. Yet this high ranking reveals a lot about the failure of these states to deal with a real-life pandemic when it actually hit. As Lee Jones and Shahar Hararina describe in a recent study of the phenomenon over several decades, the U.K. state has moved away from a style of government that takes a top-down, authoritative approach to securing resources and directly intervening to try and solve problems. All of this applies to here in the States as well. Instead, it has gravitated toward a model that simply attempts to regulate and steer others toward meeting the state's goals. Sound familiar? Should. It's a good way of describing, you know, what we see in the world. That, you know, we want, maybe, we, you know, if you're liberal, you want government to do more. Or socialists like myself. And they just say, no, no, we, we want to just change the rules to encourage others to do it. We want others to do it because that's what freedom is. If others do it, not us. That's what, that's, that's what makes us a free country. This means that rather than setting out plans for how the state will act in case of emergency, they set out tick box rules and regulations for how other agencies should behave in such an event. For example, the Department of Health's UK Influenza Pandemic Preparedness Strategy, published in 2011, admits that health and social care services would be overwhelmed in case of even a moderate pandemic. However, rather than build extra capacity in this in care services, they direct health care providers to engage in their own surge planning, regardless of whether or not they had the capacity to deal with any surges. They did it. So think about that uh, for a moment. We have a government that 
in trying to not be authoritarian or at least have this, uh, like, you know, we are letting people do things as they will, but we just want to subtly influence them, which then makes people even more paranoid about being controlled by the government in somehow, some cases. In other cases, it means that uh, when there is a emergency or a crisis, the government has to just tell people what to do rather than doing it, right? The state could just do things if they had the capacity to, but instead, because it's relied on other people to do it, they have to then tell others what to do when they actually need something done, not just, like, say, homelessness. You know, we encourage people to, you know, we encourage entities to solve the problem of homelessness. It never actually gets solved, of course, but at least it looks like they're doing something by asking nicely. But then if you actually want to, say, end homelessness, then you have to tell people to spend money to do it. And then that is, quote-unquote, tyranny in many's eyes. And it certainly is a bit more of a tyranny instead of if, say, the state provided public housing. Is that tyranny? Is that taking people's freedom away to have public options for things? This also, at least, partly explains the government's obsession with behavioral psychology. Seeing no role for itself in actually solving problems, the government, I'm going to drop UK, has convinced itself that we are the problem. Closing in on two years since the first inklings of something awry in Wuhan, the National Health Service has still not seen its capacity increased. Staff shortages, record waiting times, and reduced hospital beds remain the stark reality of the UK's public health system. The UK actually has a public health system. You know, the thing that's like states, you know, socialist health care. But it's been cut and restrained by conservatives. Now, yet in all this time, or yet in all of this, the persistent message has been that we are the problem. In reality, there are no plans, only rules. And now, all we can do, we are told, is follow the rules. This is why I'm a little more lax on the, you know, the, the tyranny, the oppressiveness of authoritarian socialism that, you know, makes plans, makes plans for you, makes plans for me. But at least it doesn't, well, it also sets out a lot of rules. But what if it had plans and the ability to carry them out, but it doesn't really have any rules? You know, it's like we have a plan to distribute goods and services, produce things, and for you to consume things. <laughs> and we're not really going to set down any rules, only the, the boundaries of, of the plan. The plan is the rules. So the other way around where we have no planning, but a lot of, of rules. So it just, it, which is itself, it, you know, it, everyone feels oppressed by these, all these rules, zoning rules, uh, when you own a home, when you don't own a home, and you're a tenant or a worker, just tons of rules, never any plan on what's actually happening or could happen. Now, this approach is not limited to government. It seems there's no shortage of bodies appearing, offering not to make anyone's lives better, but to create endless rules and frameworks and charters. Endless mounds of paperwork and plans that someone else is at some point expected to fulfill. In higher education, students are sometimes attracted with promises of workplace experience via credit-bearing placement options. Yet, when they arrive, they find they must source those placements themselves. You know, find your own internships. Find your own work studies, your own life experience. We're not going to help you with that. 
The university simply provides a framework and rules that the student must demonstrate they meet, submitted for credit at the end of the semester. No unique opportunities, just more rules. Elites everywhere are developing excellent skills in creating paperwork and PowerPoints. But when it comes to actually getting things done, that's up to us. So there's also so, so there's two ways of seeing this, right? It's a, we're on our own mentality. You know, we want help from our institutions because we buy, we buy into them perhaps, or at the very least, our labor supports them. So we want something. We want, you know, I pay taxes. I want, I want it to be worth it. But we're on our own, actually. There's rules, but no support, you know. In New York, we have, we have the, literally a phrase, unfunded mandates. The state mandates something, usually for the public good, something you'd want to have, but it doesn't provide any funding for it. Schools need to do this and that for students, all things that people support, but it will not provide the tax monies to pay for it. It's up to the districts to pay for it. So they have to raise local taxes. Aha, but oh, but then cries the taxpayer, don't raise my taxes. Suppress it. So they put tax caps. And so there's mandates that then go unfulfilled. It's quite, quite a mess. So the general takeaway is please alleviate yourself from any conspiratorial thinking. Why? Because our elites are incompetent. If they could solve any problems or if they could do things, then they could do it. But they don't. They can't actually solve any problems unless it's their own problem, but, you know, if they're rich and they exploited people to get that wealth, their problems are solved. They've escaped capitalism. We're on our own. And it can also be that the other side of it is it's free. Um, besides the rules that, you know, in order to escape them, we need to live illegally or in some way. We need to be illegal, as it were. Be a rule breaker. You're not actually being controlled. Uh, there actually is no carrot or stick. Well, there's plenty of sticks, I suppose. But there's no carrot egging you, egging you along. We are all perfectly free to do something else. Meaning, you know, leave the system, or rather, change the system. That's going to be what the next episode will be about. This episode is going to be the morbid, cynical episode here, about how nothing is possible or nothing can work. I'm, I'm trying not to go with nothing's possible or we can't do anything about it. In fact, I'm going to you know, switch gears towards the end. But it's more about how everything's terrible. So I'm, gonna, I'm sticking with that theming. So this next one, from uh, the next two pieces I'm going to read are from very mainstream, very centrist sources for the rest of the hour. First one is from Salon. Ooh, la la. Um, and it's about the political divide. Oh, we're so partisan. Divided, more divided than ever, right? And this one has political science um, behind it. The political divide in the U.S. has become irreconcilable, study says. The U.S. is at dangerous levels of polarization. The polarization levels, they're, they're rising. They're at critical. Oh, it's like it's like you got that needle, and it's going to the red. Oh, the levels of polarization. <laughs> this is written by a Nicole Carlos, published December last year. 
Politics in the U.S. has become an increasingly polarized affair for decades, driven largely by the right moving further to the right and left out that the um, center is just the same, just stays the same, or rather the left also moves to the center. Uh, by the left meaning Democrats, liberals. Liberals stay the same, absolutely the same, because actually they're the real conservatives. Conservatives just go more to the right, or rather they're the same that they were 50 years ago or something like that. But then, of course, there's new right-wingers, people my age who are new conservatives, and they have the same kind of radicalization as me, that like nothing works, everything's going to collapse, and everything's terrible. Just completely different wackadoo um, responses as far as what, what needs to happen or what could be done or what would be nice and what, I, what, what that leads to. So... Studies bear this out repeatedly. Now some researchers say the partisan rift in the U.S. has become so extreme that the country may be at a point of no return. According to a theoretical model's findings published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the pandemic failing to unite the country despite political differences is a signal that the U.S. is at a disconcerting tipping point. Because apparently, like this is in conjunction or in comparison with, let's say, the crisis of 9/11 that united the country. But the thing about the trauma of 9/11 is it materially only affected New York City, maybe New York State or the the metropolitan area. It didn't actually affect the people in Kentucky. It didn't actually. Oh, you know, I mean, the rollout, of course, of the security state in the Iraq War that. All of the war on terror, that affects everyone in America more or less. But I mean as a... Anyway, I'm not going to go into the psychoanalysis. I have a book that I'm going through very slowly about it. We see this very disturbing pattern in which a shock brings people a little bit closer initially, but if polarization is too extreme, which I guess it is, eventually the effects of a shared fate are swamped by the existing divisions and people become divided even on the shock issue. People have divided on how to think about a pandemic, the thing that should unite us, or a terror attack. You know, some say we deserve it, or some say we should sue for peace, or the crisis of, of uh, Ukraine, if you can call it a crisis for us. It's not a crisis really for us. It's a crisis for Eastern Europe. Aha. So this is a this was a quote from network scientist Boleslaw Skolmanisky, a professor of computer science and director of the Army Research Lab Network Science and Technology Center, long name, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Oh, that's right up a river for me. So they have an Army Research Lab there. They're very RPI, very much ensconced with the military industrial complex. As a lot of our universities are actually. Maybe that should be concerning us. If we reach that point, we cannot unite even in the face of war, climate change, pandemics, or other challenges to the survival of our society. As I've reported below, or before, sociologists and experts in disaster resilience studies often observe that a therapeutic community surfaces in the wake of a disaster. Now these are local communities doing mutual aid. Referring to during a, after a hurricane, wildfire, or terrorist attack. Well, that was the case to some extent after 9-11. 
though, of course, not to the country. It's not like the federal government provided tons of aid after 9-11. I mean, it was John Stewart made it his basically his public mission for a decade to get the support for the people who did the rescuing in 9-11, who worked at the site and basically all got various kinds of cancer or disease. And they didn't get the support, just as our veterans don't get full support. There's no community on the national level. And that, in that way, what kind of nation do we have? So that's the kind of question posed by you know, the next, these two pieces, right? We're divided. I wonder why. Because it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it matters to be American. It only feels like it feels like a negative. So that was in the case, to some extent, after 9-11. The pandemic hasn't united the nation the same way. Experts have argued that any possibility of unity was doomed from the start of the pandemic, in part because of how politically divided and polarized the nation was before the novel coronavirus began spreading. This latest paper adds to this theory and suggests that the U.S. is so divided that it may be a repairable point at which unity is not possible. So Skyermansky and fellow researchers re reached their conclusion by simulating the views of 100 theoretical legislators around 10 polarizing issues. So these are political scientists that aren't really canvassing or whatever. They're using computer models. So take grain of salt. The researchers had their theoretical legislators interact and network with theoretical neighbors and like-minded groups to see the influence these interactions had on polarization, too akin to a Sims-like video game. When manipulating the group's control parameters, such as increased party identification, tolerance for disagreement, and extremism, the model found that polarizing behavior among politicians is one reason why the country is as politically divided as it is today. This paragraph says it's politicians being more polarized. But, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a cart, car and horse, chicken and egg paradox where it's like, well, it's a dialectic between leaders egging people on and crowds egging on their leaders. And uh, or the media centers, usually funded, you know, funded by capitalists. It's a capitalist media network, media ecosystem, pumping people up because it, you know, it's uh, profitable to do so. And you want to reinforce capitalism, people's support of it. Because people can be really extreme, but still, still, still be like you know, okay, we're not changing capitalism. We're uh, we're we're still gonna as long as there's little improvements in my city, some way, enough, just enough investment, to make it seem like everything is not going downhill, even if it's just maybe one part of town or certain corners, whatever. But the wealth isn't being shared, of course. So, of course, th this place, this article, I say it's a centrist one because it doesn't mention wealth inequality and that there's these separations, these, these class divides, that are just ca there's chasms. This, the erosion, the, the erasure, uh, the, the, the elimination of middle class life. You have upper middle class that's doing okay, and then you have everybody, 50% of Americans are on the precipice, or they're poor, or they're about to be poor. If inflation goes up another 10%, or because of the last inflation bounce, everyone's now like, I can't afford what would be simple luxuries. 
At various points, the research team introduced an outside threat, like a pandemic, and then recorded how the group behaved. Interestingly, it appeared that when the group introduced an internal threat that failed to unite the country, that meant that the level of polarization was beyond repair. If the polarization is very, very deep in these 10 issues, then we are at the very dangerous stage in which it is very difficult to reverse polarization by democratic means. So Mamaski told Salon, when the tipping point is passed, there is no constitutional means that can reverse polarization. So we're like, before the Civil War, you couldn't constitutionally solve the slavery question. And so that, that, that begs the question of what is the big question of today? What's the thing that we can't constitutionally solve? You know, because Congress is in gridlock and the um, court, let's say, comes to very partisan decision-making. Because they're supposed to be the arbiter of nonpartisan decision-making. Indeed, graphs displaying the relationship between polarization and the control parameters show that in many situations a high amount of polarization that couldn't be rectified by an external threat meant that society was in a phase transition where uh, measures of polarization began to increase exponentially. In these scenarios, if the polarization was dialed down, the trend could be re reversed. In other cases, a recovery wasn't possible. Although political polarization is nothing new, expanding political division is creating an unpredictable environment that threatens the capacity of government to respond rationally in a crisis. This is uh, Kurt uh, Brenneman, Dean of the Rensselaer School of Science. This research is designed to enhance societal resilience by predicting when the level of pro political polarization within an influential group is nearing the point where a sudden threat will no longer produce collective action. Skyamansky said he hopes people take away from the, this study that this theoretical model confirms intuition. If the external strong signal does not unite people, we are in danger of getting into this irreversible polarization. In a divided society, it's of course very difficult to maintain that democracy which requires agreements of all people, really doesn't need all people, never really needed all people, some people, enough people. The agreements of enough people, I'm going to change that, to people who win elections and lose elections. Skamansky added that the research shows the U.S. is at a dangerous level of polarization, but perhaps electing less polarizing politicians could reverse the trend the U.S. is facing. It's almost the last call. Oh boy. It makes me spitting mad uh, whenever kind of I read something like this, which basically suggests, like, I'm part of the problem. I'm polarizing people by being partisan, by having positions, by having principles I don't want to budge on or suggesting that I can be principled and have positions and want to fight for my platform, but I need to elect, I need to vote for people who actually are like down the middle. That's what we need more of, people, more people down the middle. We don't need Trumps. And, but just think about Biden. He's supposed to be down the middle. And look how polarizing he is between Dems and Republicans. Or rather... You have tons of people who individually identify as down the middle. I'm not left or right. I want to agree with people. I want to solve problems. But then when you mention Biden, they scoff. They hate him. They hate the Dem they hate any politician that's down the middle. 
that talks of solving problems, at least maybe on the national level, when it comes to solving national problems. Now, when it comes to, this is the thought that I kind of stopped myself halfway through, is when it comes to local politics or state or whatever, that you have a lot of, um, not state, but let's just say local, because politics are local. People, voter base, they're down the middle. They just want people to solve problems. They want things to be automatic. They don't want that to think about it. But when it comes to national politics, it's like they'll think about it all the time. They'll care about it. They'll be emotionally invested because that's what media focuses on. Now, maybe we could have partisan media polarizing us on local issues, and then we could actually have neighbor fighting neighbor. But when it comes to local politics, it's, it's all very united most of the time. Maybe not around personalities. You could have local fights. But in, in an all-Democrat town like mine, it's, it's a one-party rule. And there's a lot of institutions and culture that reinforces it. On the national level, there's no... doesn't seem to be any institution reinforcing unity or there is sort of... No, no, not even nationalism. I mean, you have... Yeah, Fox News almost like in a like they're being in a nationalistic way. They're saying America's exceptional, and that's why we shouldn't. I don't know, fight war wars or grow the empire. But you know that that's all. It's all bunk. It's all bunk on their end. It's not really. They can say things, but they can change their issue or talking points on a dime. But yeah, so I'm wrap that up. I'm spitting mad. I actually do like. Polariz- not polarization, but you know, I'm polarized. <laughs> I'm radicalized. And I would like more people to join me. Because this whole down the middle, let's all work together. What is it solved? What is it solved? It's all it's it, well, it solved the problem of avoiding civil strife. You know, but that can only be the case if we have institutions, Democratic, Republican, whatever, that can do that, that can solve problems. What problems have they solved? ever solved, really. But let's assume they did at one time when America was united against communism. You know, we need an external... We could be united against, uh, you know, Islam, jihadism anyway. That that seems to have run its course. Because when you think about it, Dems and Republicans, they're all very united about hating and being against enemies, you know, Russia. But, well, that's what I mean. Russia, actually, China, definitely. They're all, they all like fear and uh, see China as the real threat. Russia, eh, there, there seems to be this, this um, disagreement. But ideally, if we weren't so polarized, we'd all agree that it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be disagreement, actually. You know, it's, um, I have to know if, uh, I can't say this, I have to say this conditionally because I don't know if Republican politicians are putting up Ukraine flags up uh, every flagpole. They certainly are in my city. So wrapping up this hour. Uh, another middle of the road. A lot of problems with this, but I like it's good good ranting material. From Insider to the theme of everything's a bad. The U.S. has reached the last stage before collapse. I'm going to say, folks, I actually don't agree with this. I don't agree with, like, U.S. You know, day, best days are in front of it, actually. No one believes that, really unless they're deluded. But uh, collapse is kind of a tough term. Collapse kind of suggests it's all going to happen very quickly. But even big empires do not decline uh, quickly. 
they don't decline quickly at all. Uh, it's kind of interesting when, uh, let's say, let's take the Ottoman Empire, which was lasted uh, 400 years. And you could say it like it had a rise, and this is the cynical take, that it declined, like it rose for 100 years and declined for 300. Did it really decline for 300? Well, not really. But it did have a certain stasis where it wasn't expanding anymore. It could only lose territory over time territory and influence and uh it had it's just like the roman empire again the roman empire centuries it lasted for centuries even when it, re- it had a height but like what what was height mean but they would have a crisis every 50 years and they would solve it or they'd reorganize and the and the empire would continue even when the empire was split in half was that collapse no no one at the time would say it was collapse they were Retaining the empire. So if America split in half, you know, would that be the end of the empire? No one would really say so. But you could say, oh, it would be the end of the U.S. We wouldn't be united anymore. But that's the kind of thing that could have been saying, uh, said during the Civil War. That it was split in half, and this is the end of America, the United States. Except it would still be the North, would still be the United States. It would still be called that. As long as there's something called the United States, you know, as long as there's something called the Roman Empire... It's still not in decline. It's not collapsed yet. Uh, but then there's that, that moment where, okay, like it has actually broken up, balkanized or divided. And that's kind of what the polarization is kind of about, that the rather what can be predicted with some certainty is that with polarization uh, that we will create binary institutions, one that's left, one that's right, or that they, we will all be sections off with our own Netflix or something, our own Disney. I'm not really so certain about that, but it's a suggestion. I certainly feel that way as far as, like, if you want to escape capitalism, we need our own stuff, and we do. Like, uh, there's Means TV for streaming, video streaming. There's um, there's alternatives to every capitalist version of, like, like Spotify. There's this co-op that's does what spotify does but it actually pays the artist something but you put in like money instead of ads you put in like a bunch of money up front like 20 dollars, and you basically pay a dime for every listen but what i don't want to digress too much point is there are alternatives that just need to be known and promoted amongst those that are that have anti-capitalist politics for news for analysis you know there's an ecosystem for it we have our own stuff. But can it work independently of U.S. imperial infrastructure? That's the quandary we're in. Which is why it's not really about escaping the system as much as changing it. And I see polarization and us creating, whether what side you're on, our own institutions, our own things that work for us, to get that feeling again, to have a community, to have people that care about us and we care about them, and have things that work instead of things that have to be down the middle and don't do and don't work. I would rather have things that are segregated based on political outlook. And, and we, you know, because the, the downside is we're separated. We don't trust each other. We will be fighting each other. There will be violence. More violence than there is today in some way. And that's the downside. But. I'm not so sure about that. 
But I, I rather I see the separation and the creating of our own stuff as part of the solution, the part of moving forward. It's I mean it's a natural progression, in a way. But anyway, last stage before capitalist from Insider. Not bad, by James Traub. And this is this is this is just full, full uh, pseudo historicism. In the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon. And by the way, this is a book from like the 1930s, not exactly the latest scholarship. Edward Gibbon literally evokes the Rome of 408 AD when the armies of the Goths prepared to descend upon the city. Marks of imperial decadence appeared not only in grotesque displays of public opulence and waste, but also in the collapse of faith in reason and science. By the way, this, this, this writer is not actually disputing any of this stuff, but let me just outlay... Uh, layout that it like it's pseudo history it's like there there's tons of things you can point at like the historical record that disputes all of these things like the roman empire wasn't really this beacon of reason and science it had like an upper class that did some of that but it was always kind of like you had paganism so the people of rome given rights fell prey to a puerile superstition promoted by astrologers and to soothsayers who claimed to read in the entrails of victims the signs of future greatness and prosperity. But of course, they were doing that throughout the entire history of the classical history. So it's like when they were rising, they were doing this. You can't say it was the cause of the fall. <laughs> Would a latter-day given describe today's America as decadent? Well, certainly um, neocons do and, and alt-writers. I recently heard a prominent and pro-American French thinker who was speaking off the record say just that. What does it mean to be decadent, though? Is trans rights decadence? See, you could, the right would say trans rights are decadence. I would say billionaires going to space is decadence. <laughs> he was uh, moved to use the word after watching endless news accounts of U.S. President Trump. Tweets alternate with endless relevations of sexual harassment. I flinched, perhaps because a Frenchman accusing Americans of decadence seems contrary to the order of nature. And the reaction to Harvey Weinstein at all is scarcely a sign of hysterical puritanism, as I suppose he was applying. And yet, the shoe fit. The cessation of creeping rot evoked by that word seems terribly apt. Now, it could be, now I need to point out again, uh, rather uh, aside, that conservatives have been saying that we're a decadent society on the decline all throughout American history, in a way. Except for maybe the first 20 years, the era of good feelings, as it's called. Perhaps in a democracy, the distinctive feature of decadence is not debauchery, but terminal self-absorption, the loss of the capacity of collective action, the belief in common purpose, even the acceptance of a common form of reasoning. Point there. We listen to necromancers who prophesize great things, while they lead us into disaster, we sneer at the idea of a public and hold our fellow citizens in contempt. We think anyone who doesn't pursue self-interest is a fool. Now, of course, I doubt this guy supports public housing or public health care or anything public, really. He thinks public is a state that encourages people to solve problems for the public good. We just have to believe in it, <laughs> never mind the material circumstance. So we cannot blame everything on Donald Trump much, though we might want to. In the decadent stage of the Roman Empire or Imperial France, monarchical France, 
or the dying days of the Hasburg Empire, so brilliantly captured in Robert Musi's The Man Without Qualities, decadence seeped downward from the rule, rulers to the ruled. Now, this is all great man theory. Read Howard Zinn as an anecdote. But in a democracy, the process operates the other way. First, the decadent elite. The decadent elite licenses degraded behavior, and the debauched public chooses its worst leaders. Then our Nero panders to our worst attributes, and we reward him for doing so. But it's not good history, because Nero was 1st century AD. He wasn't during the decline of the Roman Empire or its collapse. Nero isn't a sign of Roman decadence and decline. It was actually Roman decadence at its height. <laughs> decadence, in short, describes a cultural, moral, and spiritual disorder. The Donald Trump in us. It is the right, of course, that first introduced the language of civilizational decay to American political discourse. A quarter of a century ago, Patrick Buchanan bellowed at the RNC that the two parties were fighting a religious war for the soul of America. Former Speaker Gingrich accused the Democrats of practicing multicultural nihilistic hedonism, of despising the values of ordinary Americans, of corruption, of illegitimacy. That all-accusing voice became the voice of the Republican Party. Today, it is not the nihilistic hedonism of imperial Rome that threatens American civilization, but the furies unleashed by Gingrich and his kin. So I guess this guy's a good Democrat, I guess. Doesn't quote any of them. No, no partisanship there. No uh, cynical teetotaling. So he goes through, you know, cynical elite, but he only, he only seems to mention um, Republicans. Yeah, and he talks about the people of Alabama, but the voting public of Alabama, voting for Doug Jones, a, race, a rapist. So, you know, he talks about Trump and Trumpism. Let's skip ahead to targeted tax cuts. So no less extraordinary is the way the tax cuts have been targeted to help Republican voters and hurt Democrats. Now, of course, we talk about partisanship. This guy only seems to identify Americans as either one of the two parties. When that's a minute, you know, it's, it's only a quarter of the public you're talking about. I certainly didn't vote for Reagan, but I cannot imagine him using tax policy to reward supporters and punish opponents. I don't know what reality this guy's in. That's exactly what he did. He would have thought that grossly unpatriotic, the new tax, so this is, this is a Reagan Democrat, I guess. Let's skip ahead. I don't want to linger on this guy. Because I don't, I don't like any of these. A democratic society becomes decadent when its politics become morally and intellectually corrupt. So it's all, it's all very base idealism here. That it's ideas that matter, not whether people are starving or homeless or inflation went up or the economy is stupid. It's, it's just you know what we believe that you know we're decadent. But what is the cause of decadence? It's inequality. Is this guy? This guy doesn't talk about it, doesn't acknowledge it, doesn't know what to do about it. A, Democrat, a democratic society becomes decadent when its politics, which is to say its fundamental means of adjudication, become morally and intellectually corrupt. But the loss of all regard for common good is hardly limited to the political right or for matter to politics. Okay. Because I'm reading this because he is also, amongst all the garbage of this guy's thinking and rhetoric, he still recognizes the same problem that I would or the last person did. Uh, we need only think of the that, that there's this lack of you know a uniting force in America 
that American nationalism isn't what it used to be, that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's actually true. Because when people argue about things, like they were arguing about what's best for America because they somehow care about America. But maybe I need to remind you folks, I'm a leftist. I care about people, not the country. The country can break apart for all I care. Um, what I care about is good outcomes for people. I need to hear a good case that like this united, big, colossal empire is like what's best for for us because like the promise is like we we're a big empire we get a lot of wealth we exploit the rest of the world and that makes everybody in america richer so even the poorest have a microwave and a refrigerator <laughs> but that's not the case anymore folks i mean never never really was we've always had an underclass of homeless and degraded and, and poverty stricken you know the great society in the 60s cut poverty in half but that still meant that there was you know, a quarter of Americans in poverty. When Teddy Roosevelt called in the monopolist of his day malefactors of great wealth, the epithet stung and stuck. Now the bankers and brokers and private equity barons who helped drive the nation's economy into a ditch in 2008 react with outrage when they're slighted, singled out for blame. I don't care if they're outraged. I just I want them gone. By gone, I mean I don't. We need to strip them. We need to redistribute or distribute wealth as it's created. Being a wealth creator means never having to say you're sorry. Enough voters accept this proposition that Donald Trump paid no political price for his unapologetic greed. The worship of the marketplace, and thus the elevation of selfishness to a public virtue, is a doctrine that we associate with the libertarian right. But it has coursed through the cultures of a, as a self-justifying ideology for any kind of rich person of all political persuasions, perhaps also for people who merely dream of being rich. So instead of late-stage capitalism, he just calls this the late stage before collapse. Decadence, and he's just calling, he's just talking about decadence, decadence. He takes this article to, to describe and explain what he means by that. Decadence is usually understood as an irreconcilable condition, the last stage before collapse. The court of Muhammad Shah, last of the Mughals, to control the entirety of their empire, lost itself in music and dance, while the Persian army rode toward the Red Fort. That also sounds like bad history. I don't know the actual history of that, but it sounds like pseudo-history too. Now, why do I say that this guy's just doing pseudo-history? Because there's tons of books written about, uh, or not tons, but I mean, I, I read a few chapters of a book in the library once that was literally just called America is Not Rome. And it basically went chapter by chapter and explaining all the different ways in each kind of sector that America, as an empire is not like the Roman Empire. The differences in our economies, political structures, history, pretty much everything. It's not totalizing, of course. Not to totalize like we are not Rome. There's no comparison you can ever make. It's just a stretch. <laughs> just a stretch to make these one-to-one -one comparisons. That like, oh, Rome was decadent when it collapsed. <laughs> or just before it collapsed. Which is... Even if it is written in the stars that China will supplant the United States as the world's superpower, Britain being the most obvious example and the one democracy among them have surrendered the role of global hegemon without sliding into terminal decadence. I think a lot of Brits would disagree with that, though. It's also wrong to kind of say that, like, the UK and the US are now, like, separate, kind of separate empires. 
Can the United States emulate the stoic example of a country it once surpassed, I wonder? <laughs> oh, yes. Britain really went gracefully into decline, right? The British have the gift of ironic realism. When the time came to exit the stage, they shuffled off with a slightly embarrassed shrug. That, of course, is not the American way. <laughs> uh, when the stage manager beckons us into the wings, we look for someone to hit. Each other, immigrants, Muslims, or any other kind of not us. This guy's really weird. Uh, he's a contributing editor of foreign, foreign policy at the Center for International Cooperation. But he wrote a book about John Quincy Adams, probably our best president. But uh, So it's, it's kind of weird. But um, it just ends with losing the China is hardly the worst thing that could happen to us. Losing ourselves is. Which I like that sentiment. Um, but what does it mean to lose ourselves? Ourselves as Americans? Again, this identity is American. How important is it? If we lose it, will we all just devolve into uh, neighbor against neighbor? Yeah, just a little bit left. So you've been listening to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Uh, I'm on Facebook, um, Twitter for the time being, though I don't do anything on Twitter. Can you guess why? Um, but Facebook has the same problems, doesn't it? But uh, as long as I'm using it as a tool uh, that it's meant for, um, I have a fair enough time on it. Um, I'm also on Mastodon as well. It was a pretty funny joke. Well, it's like, what are you going to do? Go to Mastodon? Um, you know, when you want to escape Twitter or um, Facebook. All right. On the other side of the hour.
Welcome back to Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. If I don't go into it. So I uh, return to my episode titled The End. What is the end of, though? Second half. Uh, so I covered, you know, last hour. I covered various um, ways of why things are bad and why they're just not fixable. Uh, really, really jumbled way, of course. Not like I'm working off of a script, just uh, outline and little some notes. But here's a, another short one from uh, now. Now the rest. This hour is going to be more from radical perspectives. Although maybe I should start with this thing from the friendly atheist, which kind of is about how like maybe things are declining. Makes you feel like things are like it's just an, just an example, just a little anecdote of institutions not working for people today and not really being replaced by anything unless we put in the work to do it. Ideologies are kind of the, the motivation for this. That's kind of why ideology is kind of important. You need, you need like something to motivate you to do something or mindset, a way of uh, something to believe in. And uh, for that, what do I call, do I call my ideology just like utopian socialism or something like that? Can't really put an accurate name to it. Because it's not just one thing, you know, it's a multi-tendency leftism that I believe in. Not only just other people or some general humanism, but where can things go? What can be done? Most people kind of have an ideology of, like, we just need to vote in uniters. But, you know, when you ask them, what kind of leaders do you want? What kind of people in government? What kind of government do you want? They'll have like, oh, I just want a government that's down the middle. Even though when it comes to that in their heart of hearts, they might understand that down the middle is someone who will say, you know, standard run-of-the-mill politician says things that they'll do things and obviously either doesn't actually have the power to do anything or chooses not to. Or it's part of the game not to. Because uh, the game is called capitalism, and actually there are winners, and politicians and people in government do help them, or they're the ones working with them because people with economic power are the actual people with power. But anyway, enough digression. This piece is called, How Bad Should Anyone Feel About an Old Church Dying Out? Now, this is from a blog called The Friendly Atheist, and maybe you can guess, doesn't really care about church closing. But there is a kind of bittersweetness to it. The First Presbyterian Church of Belafonte is closing after 200 years. Oh, well. So this is the First Presbyterian Church of Belafonte in Pennsylvania, which has just held its final service Christmas Eve, 221 years after it first opened. The reason has nothing to do with COVID, at least not just COVID. Membership was on the decline and attendance was in the low double digits. There simply wasn't enough money coming in to justify having a building and keeping up with the necessary costs of maintaining it. The Center Daily Times, Brett Pagliato, went into the church's history as well as the challenges it's been facing. The church that was organized at a time when there were only 16 states had no shortage of movers and shakers throughout the years. It was established by the same men who founded Belafonte, which other members included two former Pennsylvania governors. Church elder Candace Deniker estimated the church had about 40 members before the pandemic, 
a number that is now down to 25. Only about a dozen attend services in person. The church did not have in-person worship from March to Easter Sunday in 2020. Attendance is down even more sharply from when Daniker joined 34 years ago. She estimated there were about 200 people that attended then. In short, and this is now Hemet speaking, in short, this church may have been closing even without the pandemic. COVID just exasperated its problems. And by the way, the friendly uh, atheist is Hemet Meda. We have classrooms that haven't been used for years. We have a nursery of items for babies that haven't been used for quite a few years, said Robert Daniker, elder of the church. Now, in 2021, we are closing our doors. There's no need for classrooms or nurseries when the average age of the church's members gets higher and higher. So if you watch the final service, it's not hard to see why people aren't rushing to join. I don't say that to mock them, only to point out what's already obvious. It's an old-fashioned church that certainly didn't adopt to a digital world or make any real attempt to get any new young members to join at a time when more young Americans are drifting away from organized religion. This is a place designed purely for in-person worship, as if its size and history should outweigh everything else. If tradition is your primary selling point, and there's no other reason to make it the center of your life, it's not surprising that they're struggling with membership. I'm not kidding about the lack of digital outreach. The church's website has been down for a while. There's no YouTube channel, and there's no microphone for the preacher. Well, maybe if, if the acoustics are good well enough, but it just means that nothing's being recorded. So just listen to how one-time member, 77-year-old Pam Benson, describes why she attends. It was so different. It was just what you did. Unless you're really sick, it was just what you did, Benson said. It's just change. It's progression. It's what happens. Not that I like it, but it is what it is. Ooh, I hate that phrase, it is what it is. She's proving a key point about why religious institutions are losing members. What keeps so many people in the pews is tradition. Not some deep desire to hear the words of Jesus for the umpteenth time, or because the church gives them some greater purpose. It's just on the schedule. It's something you do because your parents did it. You go because you think you're supposed to not because you necessarily want to. And when no one's forcing you to do it, you'll find better things to do with your time. Now, I'm reading this because I think all of this can also be laid over, framed around politics today. Whether it's um, parties, party stuff, being in a party, being organized politically, in any fashion. Unless it is directly involved or you're some kind of activist or freak, you're not doing politics. You've checked out. Because over time, it just hasn't offered anything. It hasn't done anything for you. It really doesn't provide community, as it could have did at one point, perhaps. Because I can tell you, the, the city of Albany, you know, is a sponsor for public events. But the, Democrat, the county Democratic Party isn't a sponsor of anything. But, you know, I guess local government and Democratic Party are one and the same. At least that's how it's supposed to feel. Maybe that's how a lot of people take it as well. But it, do it doesn't mean people are lining up to be active Democratic Party people. If Benson, who's been attending the church for 73 years, can't give a better pitch for why people should join other than saying it's just what you did, good luck finding single 20s, 20-year-olds 20 lining up to join. 
The final service was more like an optimistic funeral with lines about how challenges aren't anything new to humanity and hope is ours once more. It can be sad when old traditions die. I doubt the previous generation had to spend a lot of time worrying about drawing in new members. The fact that it's a serious issue for churches like this today isn't a bad thing at all. But let's be clear. The buildings should never be the most important aspect of church anyway. The people who still belong to this institution can always find a new place to worship or just do so on their own. The Associated Press notes that the future of the building is undetermined for now. I would bet good money that it won't exist in the form of a church for much, much longer. It'll either become something more useful for people in the community or become some kind of historical relic that requires money to maintain but offers very little value to anyone who wasn't aware of it already. On a side note, I find it incredible that the major articles written about this church's closing focus so little on its beliefs. They're just completely irrelevant to the story, which says something about the faith itself, or ideology, in the case of politics. No one seems to be attending because they care about the message. No one's bragging about it anyway. No one's saying the preaching was stellar, where this church helps solidify their views about various social issues. For its work, Presbyterian Church, USA, is generally progressive on things like LGBTQ rights, but it's telling that none of that seems to play a role here. And that's how we ended that. So let's move on to reactions to decline, so to speak. This is kind of a ranty piece published in a blog or some kind of section called An Injustice by Jessica Wildfire, probably a pen name. She describes herself as an influencer. So this is called, We're Starting to Feel Like There's Nothing Left to Lose. Striketober is just the beginning. Referring to last year. They wouldn't pay me. If you forgot to clock in, then you didn't work. Quote, unquote. One night, I stayed late to help clean up the kitchen. We were understaffed again, as usual. The manager clocked us out 30 minutes early. Didn't tell us until we were finally getting ready to leave. He had this tone in his voice, like he was doing us a favor. The obvious truth is that he just didn't want to pay us. Another night, I almost got fired when a woman wadded up a napkin and stuffed it in her salad. She wanted a free meal and didn't care what happened to the people cooking her food. This is what it's like to work in one of the millions of minimum wage jobs out there. Bosses treat you like crap. Customers treat you worse. There's nobody to complain to. The higher you go, the less they care about you. Every day reminds you of how disposable you are. It's humiliating. There's no escape from this humiliation anymore. The cost of life has soared far beyond the means of most Americans, and we finally see it now. The biggest story going on is the one the media isn't reporting. It's the great... It's a great reset. Not the great reset, but whatever. You can smell the mood in the air. Everyone's done, and not just with work. They're sick of the way we've been living for the last two decades. They're ready for something new. They have nothing left to lose. I wouldn't say that entirely, but if, if you are stuck with debt, minimum wage work, and no opportunity, then yeah, I would say you have nothing. But we're not talking about fighting the state. We're talking about striking. Everyone's had enough. We're all tired. We're giving up. We're doing it in a collective sense. It's not just about jobs. It's about everything. This might sound depressing, but it might just be the one thing that forces real change. 
There was a time when almost all of us thought if we went to college and worked hard, our lives would improve. But that was a lie. College did very little but saddle us with a lifetime of debt. It's not hard to meet someone carrying around fifty or $100,000 in loans now, more than they'll ever be able to pay off. Though I personally want to push back against any narrative that it was a waste of time. It's the debt that's the problem we're talking about here, not the college. Still, we kept trying. We got jobs. We worked hard. Our bosses promised us raises, promotions that never came. Didn't matter what we did. CEOs sang our praises. They thanked us for all our hard work. We made so much money for them. Would they raise wages? Not a chance. Stories are floating around about Elon Musk again. How he's on track to become the world's first trillionaire. Yes, trillions. Never mind that it would take someone like him a hundred lifetimes to spend their wealth. We've seen enough charts about income and wealth disparity. We've read about K-shaped recoveries. We've seen the Pandora, Pandora Papers, leaked documents about how little t- taxes billionaires pay. Our politicians don't even try to excuse it anymore. Mitt Romney went on Fox News and laid it out as clear as anyone could said if we tax the rich, they'll pull all their money out of the stock market. They'll buy paintings instead. Situation couldn't be get any clearer. Billionaires and now trillionaires will hold the economy hostage to protect their wealth. Politicians will defend them. The super-rich don't care about saving the planet. They've also made this clear they're interested in colonizing space. They want to mine asteroids and moons for precious metals. They've taken all of Earth's wealth. They still want more form of insanity. The workers of the world are done. They voted blue in the last election. They charged their leaders with fixing everything that's broken in our economy. Politicians promised us everything from living wages to affordable health care. We were tricked again. Instead of taking care of us, our leaders tried to force us back to work in the middle of a pandemic. They forced schools open and misled us on key issues. They spent years bickering over infrastructure. Meanwhile, we tried to make it clear one last time how dire the situation was for most Americans. We tried to explain how we couldn't afford to live anymore. We talked about the rising cost of living, not just this year, but over the last two decades. They didn't listen. Now, of course, she's talking about just posting on social media. How are we expressing this? How are we saying it to them? Certainly, she's suggesting there's been enough lobbying. And protest. Perhaps that's what, maybe that's what she means about you know talking about 2020. They assumed we would keep showing up because that's what we've always done. We still hoped for a future. You know, like that, like the woman, like the woman in church. It's just what we've always done. You're just supposed to. But now we're finally awake. Fair wages might be the one issue every normal person can agree on. I don't care who you are or what you believe in. If you have a job should be able to live and raise a family. That's what we all kind of, you know, that's the uniting belief, right? No matter how aggressive you are, reactionary. Workers see what's going on. They can't afford the system anymore. They can't take on any more debt in order to buy homes or pay rent or pay medical bills or send their kids to college. They find they figure if they're going to be broke, might as well go down fighting. Chickens are roosting. Maybe it feels unreal to see aisles and shelves empty, and to worry about whether we'll get to have Turkey Day. The real question is how we made it so long on this broken economy in the first place. Our bosses and politicians gaslight us for too long. 
So does media. They kept telling us everything was fine. It wasn't. They ignored us. This is the price, if you look around. It's even bigger than a labor movement. People are quitting everything. It's hard for us to imagine a world where nobody bothers getting an education because it's too expensive. Nobody bothers going to work because it doesn't pay enough. Nobody bothers buying anything because they have zero money. Some of us can. What's happening right now makes perfect sense. It's been two decades in the making. People are giving up on all of it because it doesn't function anymore. We're finally being honest. It's unsettling. But this is the part of the story that makes sense. What didn't make sense was how we could keep playing squid games where nobody ever won except billionaires. If we're not striking, we're doing the minimum now. We're not doing all the invisible work that made our CEOs so much money. There's no point in going above and beyond because it leads nowhere. Minimum pay gets minimum effort. There's no reason to do more. So Striketober is happening. Workers across multiple industries are protesting. They're walking out on the job. They're lying flat. It's everywhere. We're talking about shipping, manufacturing, education, retail, fast food, and everything in between. Workers aren't worried about shortages, because most of them could never afford to live anyway. It doesn't matter to them if a pillion bike or a fancy toy doesn't arrive somewhere on time. They're not bothered by empty aisles and shelves at grocery stores, because they already know the pain of hunger, long-term food insecurity. Striketober is just the beginning. Workers have decided the top 10% is finally going to feel the discomforts and inconveniences they have inflicted on everyone else. If corporate managers can't raise wages, then their families can learn to do without the luxuries they've gotten used to. Billionaires can finally watch their profits dry up and their shares tank because there's nobody left to do anything. The same thing is happening in China and other countries that relied on massive debt and cheap labor. You can't run an economy with such staggering wealth gaps. You can't live in a world where a handful of people are trillionaires and nobody can afford to buy what they're making. This is Karl Marx in action. This is what he meant when he talked about alienating workers from the products of labor, their labor. We've created a bubble economy on exploitation and debt. This was always going to happen. It was inevitable. So those referring to Striketober, back last October, there was a bunch of I think I covered, I covered this, didn't I? I, I must. I must. I did cover it. And now in the last month, instead of just strikes, you actually have unionizing drives that are succeeding after many years of drives that did not succeed. It's not like there weren't union drives. It's not like there wasn't people trying to unionize. It's just that there was finally some breakthroughs. And I think Striketober and the pandemic labor action is just because of the health risks and people actually dying on the job. It got bad enough. It was, you know, triangle waist shirt factory kind of stuff. It was a crisis and there was people were actually dying. It was people were in fact, when, when you actually start seeing people die, then yeah, you don't have anything left to lose. Now we will, enough people are active and unionizing to break, make those breakthroughs before it was just a handful. It was such a thankless, unreported job because it's depressing to report on every failure, every loss. It's like, oh, the left, we're just destined to lose everything. But we can win things. And this is where I'm not 
calling this episode the end to be cynical or to be doomerist. To say it's the end of the stage of history. Not that it's just one year or the next, but of course, you know, you have these culminating events. 09, recession, history moves. But all the while, we need to have ideas on what we are working towards, what we're really, what are the big ideas? What's the ideology at work? So I'm going to read um, another piece from, not another, but I mean, I've read it before, Hood Communist, from a man named Jesse Chase. It's called Values of, interesting title here, Values of Conquest Over Personal Freedom Today. Because sometimes I set up this dichotomy, binary, a versus between a collective mindset versus an individualistic one, and that we are too far in the extreme of people thinking individualistically. You know, my profit, my well-being, my family, my community. Or that when there is collective thinking or words, like, say, when my city government speaks of the community, like they're referring to the entire city, which is just wrong. We're not one community. There's no collective Albany identity. We have a city of communities, which is also acknowledged, actually, usually talking about in terms of neighborhoods with different identities uh, based on class, for the most part. But pretended in the illiberal way that there's something else at work, like ethnicity. So he start he goes a little all over the place actually. He kind of he covers a few this article, this piece kind of covers a few different things here. But there are some points here that I'm gonna dwell on, the things that I want you to remember as myself. So first the values of conquest. So it kind of goes into basic needs first. Land, food, medicine, and the individual are four main properties that form the matrix of conquest according to the ideology of scientific socialism. Land is first. Food is second. As Kissinger once said in 1970 that who controls the food controls the people. Who controls the oil controls the nation. Third is medicine and health care. And the fourth is the effects of the three previous properties imposed on the well-being of an individual. First, we'll start with the fourth the well-being and personal access, efforts and solidarity of people seeking and wanting a better world. But the mass solidarity of what many people in the West think of revolution is not. For example, BLM is not a revolutionary organization. Protest as ritual is not revolution in itself. You know, what you could say, aside, that it's just what we do. It's what we've always done. It's tradition to protest. Taking it to the streets is the liminal front line for urban guerrilla revolution. But BLM as an organization has no training cadres, no centralization, no cohesive ideology for a decentralized network. And if you're going to have a decentralized network, you've got to have a good, solid ideology that unites people or that you know people are acting the same way, even if they're decentralized. It's an identity-based movement and has succumbed to liberal opportunism and careerism for professional activists. Its mobilization melts into the orchestrated anarchy of the geopolitical spectacle. Since the resurgence of protests in 2020, 
after people giving a crap about the COVID quarantine house arrest that came after the global protests of 2019. There have been efforts to organize beyond the well-do looting and destruction of corporate property, like the improvised Seattle Chaz site that took over a police station in a few city blocks, or the black militias and gun clubs that have been protecting their communities, standing against white supremacy. Maybe there are new factions and organizations we haven't heard of yet, similar to MOVE or the Young Lords or the Black Panther Party, Black Panther Clubs, and All African People's Revolutionary Party. And he names a bunch of others. Even some kind of network of cooperative economics that will be as expansive as the what was called the UNA, UNIA was. An organization requires infrastructure and shared commonality and ideology of something in order to work together and move forward together. The Haitian Revolution was organized. There were places like Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, that have been consistently building an anti-capitalist city, acquiring assets and equity for their community and self-sustainable industries made up of worker-owned co-ops. What movements like BLM or Antifa do is mobilization and protest is ritual because of liberal obsession with symbols versus organization. You can't go to war broke. These days you can't organize with zero dollars, and there is no revolutionary without an organization and a shared ideology or commonality. Kwame Tura emphasized this again and again. And so if there's no organization, what's it going to be? Anarchy, communalism type living? Or just pre-capitalist off-the-land life? No labels. Oh yeah, that sounds good. I'm also writing this to help clear up a conflict noticed among BLM protest goers and supporters. And that is the heteronormative versus queer identity politics within BLM, the world at large being stifled by the heteronormative Christian brainwashing that the LGBTQ2 members of our communities are part of some greater agenda to effeminate the black man. Although the queer agenda seems to be embraced by the, I'm, I'm inserting queer, seems to be embraced by the white capitalist mainstream media, it's just an act. The community itself is divided more by queer people who are still often white, rich, and racist, as it is often proven in the hyper-capitalist spectacle of pride parades and corporate sponsorship. Homosexuality is well-documented and traditional, the five genders that existed before colonization. This includes cultures across Africa, First Nations, Canada, and across the rest of the world. This plays into the management of a household and the nuclear family as the principal site of capitalist reproduction. So it goes more into that, it's just an aside, not too important. Queer communities as well as queer and heteropolyamorous families can break down these exploitations by providing networks for family organizations, you know, outside the norms. Communal, actual communities. These sequences all play into distraction and attention economy. The drama of speed and politics. It goes down the same in the community orgs where there are social innovators, politicians and academics and community orgs themselves seemingly poverty pimping and throwing out a couple hundred thousand so that the petty bourgeois, you know, local liberals, local liberal orgs can squabble over crumbs and maintain the status quo with another band-aid over the most recent bullet wound. They're often, most often, willingly or unwillingly the managers that profit off and curate community dysfunction and dis disintegrate until gentrification moves in. So what's happening now to these communities around the world 
land and water defenders, community leaders, and activists being threatened and assassinated. No messiahs. J. Edgar Hugo wanted them all dead. Not that we need a messiah anyway, but still. Marginalized and poor communities face more deaths because of economics. Healthy people aren't profitable. So why is this all happening? No matter if COVID was released intentionally or not, does not exempt the fact that the world governments have never had so much control over people. And why wouldn't the media give attention to BLM while they parade identity politics as the puppet of the global capitalist power shifts taking place? That's a question. We all saw quickly the shelves at the grocery stores emptied out when COVID first hit. Just a glimmer of the immediacy and chaos that would ensue if there was no food to restock. There has been Chinese conquest of land used for farming around the world. In Brazil, Canada, and Africa. China owns 5%, around a trillion, of America's $23 trillion debt. China is second to Japan, who owns also their own trillion dollars of American debt. The American dollar is the first global currency, yada, yada, yada. To free the land of the oil economy, its perverted executives, there have been plans developed by members of uh, the subsequent First Nation, those resisting colonial oppression and pipeline expansion, to restructure the economy based off of hemp. He talks about hemp. Let's just skip to the last paragraph. <laughs> he goes all over the place. Some people already live like that, uh, talking about um, basically having a hemp-based economy or making a lot of, a lot of product. Anything you can make out of oil, you can probably make out of hemp. That's his point. Some people already live like that, already by nature. For many, it will require, I like this term, class suicide and sacrifice, as Amakar Cabal called for. In the solidarity of class sacrifice, people would find a divine reason and pledge to the earth and to revolution, which is ultimately a preservation of the sacred, and that is the earth and life on it. So uh, what he means uh, by the term that I kind of like, class suicide, it's referring to those in middle-class territory or they're professionals, they have college education, but to basically portray the capitalist system and work for system change because it's acknowledgement that if you're not in poverty, you benefit from the system as it is. But you can't, we collectively, can't solve any problems with the way things are. There's no constitutional uh, way of solving things. Our politics is completely corrupted. Inequality is too high. You know, there needs to be classes. There are cla different classes, classes of people. I've talked about this in class conflict clarity, I called the episode. There's different levels of professionals and, and small business owners. And the dream of many is to be in that middle class to be a small business owner successfully, to be a professional, to be a, a state worker like I am right now. And, I, and, and there's this concept of class suicide. I'm, I would give it up. I would give up my security or whatever or take a downgrade if it meant that we solved homelessness. Sometimes it just means being taxed more. In this case, it means a millionaire giving up being a millionaire. You know, I don't have to commit class suicide. What we need is rich people to commit class suicide. Instead of being ruling class, they would commit class suicide and actually join the rest of us in a democracy. That's what it means in its best sense. To end their, like, if you're a higher up in the hierarchy, to commit, quote-unquote, class suicide. 
to end to to work towards ending your position in that hierarchy to fight for equity so some final words this is why must we must fight with a plan for the future live with purpose a one-year plan a two-year plan a five-year plan and a 10 one 10-year plan we must historically prepare for this future or there will be no future and we humans will be purged from this world as the earth heals itself and restores balance. I suggest going out of the city. Plan to have somewhere to go. A commune, a farm already accessible to your, you and your community. Have access to fresh water, as well as guns and ammo. There has never been a modern revolution without gunfire. Don't be naive. Be safe. Organize. Be informed. Be prepared. Free the land. So obviously very strident, extreme. But generally, when I say revolution, I mean system change. And sometimes that means, or it doesn't sometimes, it means to me the thing that everyone thinks that we have or could have or that we're losing, which is democracy, to have an economy that works for everybody, just to have higher wages even. But that's not enough, of course. You can raise wages and then there can be, then there'll be inflation that cancels it out. Obviously, more needed to be done. Something a little more fundamental, something more radical. And to talk about radical alternatives, I'm going to turn, finish up the hour. Not going to get through all of it. Piece from Current Affairs, which I haven't read in a while, because I'm not like, I'm not always big on their fully anarchist politics. I try to mix the anarchism with something else. But this one relates to that balkanization, that uh, splitting of America, that segregation of like our polarized society but how much of america is it actually polarized or is everyone fully classified most people when asked say they're down the middle i'm not left or right but if you actually ask them their opinions they'll actually be pretty partisan about many many things or they'll think or relate to a side over another or rather Actually, no, they won't. As far as the duopoly is concerned, they're also checked out. They don't know what else to do. It's always what we've done, you know, vote for the two parties. But they don't, they're not going to do anything else. But they hate both sides. Like um, even middle-class professionals. It's like they don't, they don't want to vote for Biden, whoever Democrat would replace him. Let's say it's Eric Adams. They know that Democrats are not going to solve any problems. But they also don't want Trump to be reelected. But they're also too scared to vote third party or to organize with a third party or new party, whether it be this middle-of-the-road, solve-problems party. They're, they're, these have been started, folks. But all these so-called independents didn't join. All these people that say, I want a third party, they never join one. Do they not know it happened, that they started? They got it in the ballot or something for a year. So they obviously saw that they were there. Maybe, maybe they didn't. I don't. I don't have enough conversations with these independents, but I need to. I need to ask, like, what about the Reform Party? Why don't you actually join and, and donate like regularly to them? Or you want a more middle of the road uniter candidates? Have you donated to any? Have you become a due paying member of some org? Anyway, to relate to that uh, split down the middle piece called every state should be a microstate. life is better when your state is small 
So I think most Americans kind of concur with that. They like they want their state to be small, but we're not talking about states that are. Um, they could be really powerful. Just we're talking about the literal size. All the nations of the earth should be split into microstates. This is written by Nick Slater. This is desirable for many reasons. People would be happier. Planet would be healthier. Conflict would be less frequent. I'm not so sure about that, but humans have organized their societies in this way before, and good things flourished. The ideas and institutions developed in ancient microstates have provided the foundation for some of the greatest advancements uh, in all histories. People love a reboot, and tiny nations too, the return of the city-state, would actually be good. Not only would it be good, but it would be popular as well. People on both the right and the left are quite receptive to the idea of microstates. Nobody likes to have their lives dictated by a group of rulers in faraway cities. There's a reason why places like D.C., Brussels, or London are often synonymous with arrogance and corruption. Whether you're a libertarian or a libertarian socialist, but you have to be a libertarian of some type, really, the one thing you can agree on is that a vast centralized state is hostile to the development of a just and pleasant society. But it's it's also, I like like the whole microstate thing because it's not trying to step around as most anarchists do as like ending the state. It's like recognizing that states are kind of good. Like we don't have to escape the state. I just listened to a three-hour conversation that really just went in circles of like defining a state, escaping the state. Because the state is like the hierarchy that's bad, you know. But at the same time, when it comes to services and public goods, like most people, everyone really, wants them to be automatic. They don't want to have to go to a planning meeting or do direct democracy for the water department or the fire department. You know, experts or the qualified can run these things. They just have to have an ideology that they're doing so for the public good and not for their own aggrandizement, or profit. This is at odds in a capitalist society. So I'd rather end capitalism, and then we can actually have those like public services run by decent people that everyone imagines can exist in capitalism, but really can't. Because there's this ability to exploit people and collect wealth and all that stuff. So uh, in the United States alone, you'll find the Second Vermont Republic. It talks of, uh, and then it discusses separatist movements uh, that reflect many different, the human desire for local autonomy. In the U.S. alone, there's the Second Vermont Republic, who want to secede because the U.S. is no longer a functioning republic, but a dysfunctional empire. There's the Republic of Lakota, comprised of people who identify themselves as free and loving Lakota, of the Sioux Indian Reservations of Nebraska, North Dakota, and Montana, the Dakotas, uh, who have suffered, you know, and so on. And then there's a Cascadia independence movement, a growing force in the Pacific Northwest that has attracted more than a few white supremacists, though. As the last example would suggest, there can be a dark side to the urge for separation. It's not hard to imagine a reasonable fascist like Richard Spencer advocating for a white-only microstate by telling black people, look, this hasn't worked out. We haven't made each other happier. We're going to have to take part in this paradigmic shift together. In fact, Spencer used those exact words in a fawning Mother Jones profile in 2016. There's also an argument to be made that many of the worst forms of oppression occur on the local level. As many people who've lived in small towns with judgmental communities will tell you, few situations can make you feel as miserable or as trapped. In theory, 
The state writ large is supposed to offer both protection from such forces and an escape route when they become unbearable. You can always run away to the big city after all. So what's the response? However, there's no reason that a world of microstates would be incapable of offering similar escape routes or protections, just as there's no reason that it would necessarily entail the creation of a pure ethnic enclave like some kind of enlightened Jim Crow. The appeal of a big state, both literally and figuratively, is that it offers an alternative to the local, whether that's in terms of authority, lifestyle, physical location. A world of microstates with impenetrable borders would be impossible. Just look at the United States, which couldn't survive without the free movement of goods and people across state lines. And this is the richest, most accomplished country in human history. Why wouldn't a similar model work for the wider world? So keeping... So that's that's an important distinction here. When we're talking about microstates, we're not talking about states with enforceable borders and the kind of what people think of with states. We're talking about states like the United States. But instead of 50 states... How about 500? How about 5,000? In that way, we're not talking about states, well, like, think counties. Like, imagine every county was, was its own microstate. I think the borders would need to be redrawn, though. Because counties are like, you know, they're subdivided into like little, they're just squares or administrative units for the state. State of New York, state of Nebraska. It would have to be different. But just for a moment, let's stop talking about the U.S., internationally the opposition to centralized authority is more diverse he talks about Zapatistas, Rojava there's more though in the Philippines there's the Moro Islamic Liberation Front which frames itself in religious terms while the Wa state in Myanmar is one of the many groups in South Asia that seek the right to self-determine for ethnic reasons though its armed forces are more robust than most thanks largely to a brisk narcotics trade it's where the it's where the roots for ecstasy come from. The point is, regardless of their politics, culture, or social background, the vast majority of people don't like to be controlled by absentee masters. That's why every colonial empire collapses after it expands past a certain point. And why extremely large countries must rely on brute force and heavy surveillance to maintain control. Big states are an expensive, repressive proposition. It's no wonder everyone hates them, or at least claims to. We claim to, but we also kind of benefit in various ways. Microstates, on the other hand, seem like much nicer places for humans to be. I happen to reside in one myself, and I can confirm this to be true. You tend to live longer there. This is a very weird article. So you tend to live longer there. Out of the top ten countries in terms of life expectancy, nine could be considered microstates. Of these, Switzerland is a bit of a stretch, but its population is still smaller than New York City's. It can also be good for your bank account. The quality of life in European microstates like Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, San Marino is perhaps the highest in the world. While it's difficult to make a blanket statement about inequality levels in microstates, which generally have a high percentage of both short and long-term immigrants, like in Adora, for example, in 2008 paper, Economic Consequences of the Size of Nations, 50 Years On, written by an economist, uh, Laurent, found that microstates have an average higher income and productivity level than small states and grow no more slowly than large ones. Ironically, the same forces of globalization that have laid bare the failings of the centralized state have also greased the wheels of its destruction, helping to, quote, 
further the economic viability of small country size. With benefits from openness, now counterbalancing penalties, from vulnerability even for microstates. This is not going to notice by people of all political persuasions. In an article for the conservative journal titled Why Small Countries Are Richer and Happier, Hans Gissnesson argued that a combination of large markets and small states makes imminent economic sense. It also makes political one. And there's also Jacobin who wrote a, a piece um, published, The Socialist Case for Leave. Sociologist Neil Davison suggested that the non-nationalist reasons why a group of people might desire to assert their own sovereignty. Like a genuine disgust, the European Union's track record of enforcing strict austerity policy, which are more influential than con uh, conventional media narratives. But this is still in the mindset, the left libertarian mindset, that we are talking about a world of open borders, open economies, and so on. Open culture. But leftists should be wary of using right-wing talking points in favor of microstates. It's not necessarily a problem to share the same objective here. Weakening the huge centralized states that feed predatory capitalist industry is a good and necessary step, provided that the tools used to do this are first used to defang the Facebooks, the Black Rocks, the Goldman Sachs of the world. In the meantime, if the right wants to sing the praises of microstates and accidentally tout the virtues of peace, because small nations have a hard time fielding large armies, or maintaining overseas military bases, as well as equality, they can't otherwise impose their will on others as easily as large nations, right? There are, of course, many objections to the idea that all states should be microstates. Some of them can even appear persuasive, while others are not. Regardless, most of them are based on appeal to realism, pragmatism, and whatever synonym for dullness you prefer. Okay, he's talking about objections. You know, it's just the way things are done. The ones that are not, like the idea that larger political units are better at creating a sense of shared identity across diverse populations, are combating immense problems like climate change. Or, or that they, you know, large states can combat immense problems like climate change. But ignore the spectacularly brutal repression necessary to enforce said shared identity. And the fact that no cultural international body has shown itself capable of taking meaningful action against any large nation that opposes it. Uh, we need to try something different. Our current options aren't working, even in, in, in the climate change space. Splitting the world in microstates would be complicated, but complicated is not the same thing as impossible. And while we shouldn't minimize the complexities of turning one big state into many small ones, we also shouldn't inflate them. Sometimes these complexities exist for legitimate reasons, but other times they're created by a cast of experts whose power and perceived depend on the ability to convince others that they're capable of solving things. Talks of David Graeber, noted anarchist. And uh, there's more about splitting things up, preventing colonial cycles from repeating themselves, why you'd like living in a microstate. It's more flexible. Because I can tell you, um, as much as I would like more, I'm not saying this as a and but I would like more local autonomy. A lot of the problems in my locality and region even really can't be solved because we're in New York State, where local power just doesn't exist. Like political machines were built basically so there would be some type of local autonomy by basically 
being able to determine who is in charge of New York State overall. Localities could get leeway and have favors and get spending, and they could do what they wanted for the most part. Now we have the rule of law, where it's just rules, 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 and regulations, and we can't really solve any problems because we're still, even with all these rules, on our own. We have all these rules against raising our own taxes or changing how our taxes work. Meanwhile, New York State doesn't raise taxes, doesn't distribute money enough to fund our schools to solve our problems. We have to we have to wait till there's national stimulus production and then we can spend money on things of social good. Well, anyway, I don't have much enough time for the outro music, so I'm just going to close out. Thank you for listening to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. After this episode, I will have one more. This is the end. The next one will be called The Beginning. And that will be the end of the two-hour Three Left Show. Then I will move to a one-hour format for good. I will be covering local news and issues, and I will not have to talk for so long and edit for so long. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you very much for listening. This has been Dan Platt. Check out check us out on Facebook. That is where I post the most. New episodes are found at threelefts.news. It's also where you can find the full archive as well.